So I want to continue this morning this theme of um, energizing our practice or we could say what's the role of wise uh, effort in my practice, in my development of mindfulness and wisdom and compassion. And it's this very um, classical topic. As I mentioned last time, the Buddha talked about virya, which we translate as effort, or in the handout is translated as exertion, sometimes translated as energy. He identified that quality of effort as one of the central qualities or one of the central um, needs of our practice. And yet we can often think about energy in a stereotypical way as being, oh my God, I have to be a completely heroic figure who wakes up at three, doesn't sleep, you know, subsists on, uh, you know, on um, canned beans or something and, and uh, denies all pleasure to myself. And this is what effort somehow is. And as we saw last time, there's a more subtle and in some sense quite uh, down-to-earth understanding of effort or energy, which is actually quite helpful. And what I'd like to do today is to review some of the nature of those teachings on effort, both in a traditional way, in a ways that make sense in our everyday lives, and then uh, add two pieces that didn't, I didn't explore so much last time. Last time we especially looked at the, those uh, so-called four wise ways of developing effort. So I'd like to add two pieces this time. One of them is what are some of the challenges or traps that we get into around effort? And I'll particularly talk about the trap of too much effort, in a way over-striving, and the trap of too little effort, or a sort of under-effort, or being lackadaisical about our practice. And then the last piece, I want to give a little more uh, development of a wonderful uh, understanding of what is mature energy her effort? What is the fullness of expressing energy? And this is the quality of what I called last time effortless effort, which is this beautiful, wonderful quality where we're at a very high level of energy or effort and it feels effortless. We all know that from our experience. It's this beautiful quality. And I believe that the direction of our practice is towards that quality of fullness and effortless effort being there more and more in our lives and that the work on effort moves us in that direction. So that's what I want to explore today. And again, leave a fair amount of time for us to explore what we might have found uh, during the week in terms of making this quality of of effort or energy more present. So, as I mentioned, I was particularly inspired um, last week to, to approach this topic partly because the question came up in a number of people's practice uh, and I was talking with uh, several people for whom the question of effort or energy came up and I was also looking at it in terms of my own experience. That it was coming up in terms of, you know, one person, for example, had received a, um, a difficult medical diagnosis and was trying to say, okay, what does wise effort mean now, and this person was in some ways thinking that wise effort meant I have to be mindful of my fear and my 
um, anxiety continually, 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 and that's what wise effort is. And as we explored it more, it became clear that part of wise effort would be to bring about ease and a sense of balance. It wasn't just being mindful all the time, that there was more in the sense, as we'll explore in those four qualities of effort, that part of effort was to bring about, uh, to help arise qualities which are helpful for our practice. So it's not just about sort of being mindful, going into the misery, you know, 18 hours a day. That, that, that was uh, maybe a misunderstanding. Uh, for another person, it was having this deep sense of, I really want to give more energy to my practice. What do I do? How do I do that? Again, it can seem to translate sometimes as, I should sit four hours a day, you know, or something like that. And as we look more at the teachings on effort or energy, it becomes clearer that that is one interpretation of what effort might be in a given person's life, but that actually it can be quite a bit broader. It could mean especially having the energy to do which is wise in the moment. It's that giving support for what helps in the moment to be wiser, more compassionate. And it can mean a lot of different things. And so that helped there. And also for myself, coming out of a period of retreat and being uh, quite inspired to continue, the question arose, what, what would, as it were, having more energy or effort mean for myself? What does that mean? And, you know, this, this urgency. And again, other people really um, uh, often the effort would be linked with the question of actually asking more radically the question, what do I really want in my life? And how can I make that more present in my everyday life? And so the whole question of effort and energy is related not necessarily to some fixed notion of I have to do it this way, but it really means having the, I would say, the development of what we most value, having a yet larger place in our lives. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. And that's what we'll explore further. So, as I mentioned, in traditional practice, in the teachings of the Buddha, this, this uh, quality of virya, or effort, or energy, or exertion, different translations, is prevalent in the teachings. It's one of the uh, factors of the Eightfold Path, that is, one of the factors of what we most need to develop to, to mature in mindfulness and wisdom and compassion. So it's right there, it's named, it's one of the eight. And if you go up to the retreat area, you know that little wheel you spin? You can spin the wheel, and you might want to do it after this talk. You can go up and spin the wheel of effort. <laughs> and, and it's one of the uh, factors of the Eightfold Path. It's also one of the qualities that are named in the seven factors of awakening, meaning that um, a fullness of effort is part of what an awakened person uh, has. Or we could say that people who are awake they have energy. We don't think of awake people as kind of um, lacking energy. They may appear in all sorts of ways. I remember some of you know uh, um, Ramdas's uh, Hindu guru. He, he used to just lie around on a blanket most of the day. But there was probably a lot of energy. <laughs> 
but so the energy can manifest in all sorts of ways. It doesn't have to manifest in, in uh, you know, in some preconceived idea. But there, the, we think of people who are awake as having a lot of energy, and there's uh, also this very uh, special teaching about effort. I thought I would give a few uh, definitions from classical tradition about effort. Uh, one uh, Buddhist scholar says that effort is the strength or application of our minds and hearts that forms the basis for us to transform our confusion. Virya is seen as the strength and sometimes mental resolve that supports and maintains various kinds of spiritual development. In one of the texts of the Buddha, effort is described as being that which most fundamentally supports our practice, that it's a kind of support. And he says this, just as a a person might shore up a house that was falling down with an extra piece of wood, and being thus shored up, that house would not fall down. Even so, effort has the characteristic of shoring up. When one shores up by effort, uh, our skillful qualities are not lost. In another text it says, um, effort, herviria, is the state of a hero or heroine. Its characteristic is energy. Its function is to support our practice. So those are some classical notions. So we can, we, hopefully we can think of it as not so much hero in the exalted state, but like we're all everyday heroes. When we respond with uh, some care and consciousness, when someone has just said something sarcastic or nasty to us, that's heroic in a way, isn't it? That when we actually stick in there at a difficult moment and do our best, that's heroic. And I think that's what's being asked for. It's the ability to have that quality of, of energy um, no matter what's happening. And so I mentioned last time the traditional model. And how many people were not here last time? So I'll, I'll go over it again briefly. Um, there is a teaching, a very a wonderful teaching, called the teaching of the four wise efforts. And I, last time I gave both the traditional wording of that and I gave a contemporary wording which I call the kayaking model of, of wise effort. And I'll give first the traditional one which is expressed in Victorian English. And you may, have, you may like it by now, but it's, it was one that I told you that when I first heard it, it, it had a sense, it didn't resonate with me. But over time, particularly through the kayaking version of it, it it's helped. So our effort should consist of four approaches. We should work for the non-arising of unarisen, unwholesome states. That's a triple negative. <laughs> you know, your English teacher warned you against double negatives. Well, this is a triple negative. Okay, the, the non-arising of unarisen, <laughs> unwholesome states. This is also called, the, I'll, I'll do the kayaking model right as I say this, so you don't get, so we, so we can make the connection, okay? The non-arising of unarisen, unwholesome states basically means, in kayaking, don't get into trouble. In other words, the non-arising of unarisen, unwholesome means that which is not skillful. Typically, in the traditional teachings, what is unwholesome is linked with greed, hatred, or delusion. 
And so it basically is saying, try to avoid getting in the territory where greed, hatred, and delusion arises. And I'll, I'll explain each of the four in a little more, more detail. So you can now get, make some sense of the non-arising of unarisen, unwholesome. Basically, don't let, don't let, don't let stuff that's not helpful start. Get, stay out of there. Okay. The second is the abandoning of arisen, unwholesome states. So if unwholesome states, greed, hatred, delusion have arisen, uh, know how to abandon them. In the kayaking model, the, fifth, the first is stay out of trouble. The second is know what to do when you get in trouble. So you see it's actually completely commonsensical. And it's just we have to work with the language. The third is the arising of unarisen, wholesome states. Basically, in kayaking it means develop good habits. And the fourth is the maintenance of arisen, arisen, wholesome states, which basically means keep your, in kayaking, it would mean keep your good habits um, in practice. So again, in very ordinary English, we would say it's try to avoid going places where um, things happen that you know are not good for you. Try to watch out for that. Secondly, if you find yourself in a state that's actually not very helpful or think good things are not happening, know how to work with that. That could mean know what to do if you're in the midst of fear or anger or uh, greed or, or confusion. Know what to do. The third is to help develop uh, beautiful qualities that either are not present or that could be strengthened. And the fourth is keep your good qualities going. So again, in that sense, quite, uh, quite commonsensical. So a little bit more about each of the four, and then I'll talk about the, uh, some of the ways that we can have uh, either too much effort or too little effort. So first, the, the, um, basically the staying out of trouble guideline, the non-arising of unarisen, unwholesome states. And I, I, I mentioned last time, I have to think that this language, the non-arising of unarisen, unwholesome states, the way it was expressed in Pali had a very different effect than it's having. And when I say that here, people shake their heads. And, but it, uh, some of you, we can translate and get it. And it's actually a beautiful teaching. But I have to think that the language in the original Pali just must have worked completely well. You know, that it actually uh, wasn't a shaking your head type of language. So... Uh, so, in traditional language, the, the idea of sort of staying out of trouble or not having unskillful states arise was often expressed in terms of developing restraint and in terms of a model uh, that was called guarding the sense doors, which is still very ac- applicable for us. It could mean uh, see that which leads us to be out of balance, you know, be careful with the kind of stimulation that we let in. I mentioned last time Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the, the uh, need to have what he called a mindful diet, which means not just food, but stimuli, means the, uh, what we take in from the media, the conversations we have. So it might mean, it might mean to um, really be, start to be aware of what's helpful for us in our lives, what's not helpful. Is this um, conversation I have with this person that may 
always get into antagonism. Maybe I just don't want to go there. Or I want to be maybe careful about, I know one person I work with, for him, staying up too late with the internet is a big issue. And so for him, part of wise effort is really to watch that tendency and actually go, go to sleep early. Because in a way, we could interpret these qualities of wise effort in terms of both what one does in the moment and then what are the supports that we, one has for one's practice, generally. So it might be, for him, it might be to reflect in the moment, if I find myself uh, sort of caught in, you know, kind of this, almost like this addictive, mindless playing with the internet, I should just, say, I should just uh, be aware that that's happened and know that I've said it's not helpful to stay up till one o'clock in the morning when I have to get up at seven, you know, doing this. And so to cut it. And it also might be to reflect generally, it's a support for my practice and for my well-being simply to get enough sleep. So that, those would both be aspects of wise effort. It would be not, not to go there. Not to, you know, traditionally, uh, even part of wise effort would be considered moderation in terms of eating, in terms of the stimuli that one, that one lets in through food, moderation and sleeping uh, would also be important. Sort of being careful where one brings one at, one's attention would be part of this as well. Um, in, in all of this practice, and, and this will be interesting to see what we've each explored, what I find really helpful in a given moment is simply to bring up the question, is this helpful for me? Do I want to go there? Because mostly when we have that quality of remembering to ask the question, we, we have at least a 50-50 chance <laughs> of doing well with it. And so it's that asking of the question, which I, I expect, I know, I know for myself, I was conscious in this last week of working with effort some. And for me, a lot of it, it came up with just the question arising, should I do this? Is this helpful? And maybe it was that way for you. And it's when just in asking that question, it's about 80% of the work. Just in asking the question in the given moment, do I want to go there? Is this helpful? The second dimension of wise effort is this uh, working to abandon states that are not so helpful. You know, in the model of kayaking, it's to know what to do when you've got in trouble. Having the skill to work with challenging states. And so this would be, sometimes it would take the form of, if you find yourself in a difficult state, just asking the question, what should I do? What, uh, what's wise for me to do now? Just to take a time out. This is really hard, isn't it? Sometimes we're in the, when we're in the middle of difficult state, let's say I'm in the middle of a really difficult interaction with someone, it might be to ask, what's helpful? You know, and often it's really helpful just to take a break, to come back to oneself. You know, um, when I'm at a meeting and I, lose, I feel like I'm losing a little bit of balance, I often go to the bathroom. This is, this is a, a secret uh, teaching here. <laughs> uh, but it's actually, uh, having a time out when we're in a difficult state is a very, very simple practice, but it goes such a long way. Because it's basically, it's, again, it's the, 
uh, parallel to that question of asking the question, what should I do? It's this bringing of mindfulness to the moment and calling on our wisdom, which is, like I say, it's about 80% of the work. So if you can actually say, I'm in a difficult state, what should I do? That, that, just asking that question, we're generally, we may not always, in, in, uh, if we look back later, do what we think is wisest, but a lot of the times we will. And it's that bringing of attention which is the most challenging aspect because what's most challenging about effort is to remember to even ask the question of what to do. It's the, just in the same way that the hardest thing about mindfulness is not mindfulness itself, but it's remembering to be mindful. And the most difficult thing is just being lost. And so whatever takes us out of that quality of being lost, whether it's coming here regularly or having a daily sitting or getting enough rest, all of that is going to support our, our wise effort. So sometimes it would be asking that question, taking a time out. Sometimes it would be simply not giving something further energy. If we're in an unproductive, conflictful uh, discussion, it might be just to cut it and say, let's stop it. That would be wise effort. You see, so wise effort is not just uh, you know, sitting seven hours a day, but it's actually in the moment doing that which is, which is uh, helpful. Um, as, we, as we looked at last time, part of wise effort is to actually bring mindfulness to our tendencies to get a little lost, to get lost in greed or some kind of uh, irritability or confusion, and really to notice what are the patterns that get me there. And, really, and sometimes it's to ask ourselves, do I really want to go there? Do I really want to stay here? What do I really want? And I think for most of us, there's actually probably, if we look honestly and carefully, there might be a certain ambivalence. Part of us wants to wake up, and part of us isn't quite sure. <laughs> Do you know that one? <laughs> you know, it's like um, um, in the autobiography of St. Augustine, he says at one moment when he was getting very inspired by spiritual practice, but he had been, as they say in the ancient text, a dissolute, a dissolute youth. Uh, which means basically a lot of uh, what, uh, in the language of those times, wine, woman, and song. <laughs> you know? And in his autobiography at one point he says, he came to a very clear re- re- uh, resolution and he said at one point, Dear Lord, give me chastity and continence, but not yet. Give me chastity and continence, and, uh, but not yet. And that might, does that resonate a little bit? <laughs> so, so we have to, there's a part of wise effort, which is really asking the question, uh, what do I want? And what, what is really important for me? And there are certain moments when, in this practice when we have the choice. Do I want to go there or want to go here? And it's really good both to ask deeply and see what we want, and also to give ourselves a little bit of slack that uh, this is a long-term process, and my experience is touching those deeper motivations and having them be present in, in daily life takes time. But it's that, that's part of the quality of effort. And there's also the dimension of the second aspect of wise effort, of, of uh, as it were, getting out of trouble or working with difficult states, is of coming to know individually, what's helpful for me when I'm caught in some challenging state, when I'm caught in fear, 
who are caught in greed, who are when I'm just confused, I'm just stuck. And I think for each of us, it's to look and to almost develop a repertoire of tools. Okay, here are my fear tools. Here are the tools I work with with, with fear. Here, you know, and it might, it might be to talk with a friend or to reflect or to do some reading or to feel it in the body. To work, mindfulness is always a wonderful tool for looking more deeply to work with fear. Or it might be to do loving-kindness practice, you know, to really connect with the heart. Or it might be to talk with a friend. Or, you know, uh, I mentioned last time, a very simple practice I do, if I feel my energy stuck, I, part of wise effort is to try to change it. If I feel like I've, you know, just my energy is a little stuck, I'll do something physical. You know, like I've been, if I'm in the house and I feel like I've just been too much on the computer or something like that and I'm just I'm feeling a little bit confused, I'll just take a walk for 10 minutes. And we know that a lot of these can just shift the energy really quickly. That's part of wise effort. How can I know that I'm a little confused and shift the energy? It might be to come back to intention. It might be to really ask, what do I really want? Uh, it might be to deliberately develop, if I'm feeling fear, to develop another state as a kind of antidote. Sometimes if I'm feeling distressed or feeling confused, we can go to a beautiful state. We can look at something beautiful. I can be with nature. I can uh, be with a friend who I know will be comforting and so forth. And I think each of us has to develop a kind of a repertoire. And it's probably almost good to have on your refrigerator. You know, here are my... Here are my get-out-of-trouble tools, you know, and to really be aware, okay, I'm in trouble, let me go down my list. It's almost like, it's almost like the, um, you know, the airline pilots, when they're about to take off or something, they go, okay, you know, ignition, you know, altitude, you know, go through all the gauges. And we can almost have, I'm in trouble, okay, I'm in trouble, let's go through. Is, uh, is uh, mindfulness a uh, good tool now? Eh, I don't want to go there. You know, so, okay, well, if not mindfulness, how about metta? Okay, <laughs> something like that. So it's having, having the tools and being really conscious that in difficult states we do have those tools and reminding ourselves. And then, and then of course, it, it really leads to the uh, third and fourth qualities that we're talking about, that the, the third or the third and fourth aspects of wise effort, that the third aspect is helping uh, good qualities that haven't been there yet to arise, and the fourth is basically keeping them going. So this also has to do with, okay, my mindfulness feels a little weak. Part of the third aspect of the arising of, well, in traditional language, the arising of wholesome states, of unarisen wholesome states, or in kayaking language, develop good habits, would be, okay, I can strengthen my mindfulness. So maybe part of my wise effort is to really make a commitment to daily practice. That's part of wise effort. Or it might be to really say, I'm going to come to one sitting group a week. That's part of wise effort because it's strengthening the qualities of mindfulness. Or it might be to say, metta would be, or loving kindness would be a really good tool when I'm in distress. How can I strengthen that? And it might be to say, I want to do it every day. Or I want to go on the metta retreat or something like that. You know, or it might be to... Um, um, connect with more joy and more beauty, that that would be kind of a balancing state. For the friend that I was mentioning who was feeling 
like there's a very difficult uh, medical diagnosis that I mentioned near the beginning. Uh, for her, part of Wise effort was actually in the midst of, of certain amount of distress was really to go to more joy and connect with the joy and connect in a way that balanced her being. And that would be part of wise effort as well, to do that which balances, to bring about more joy or more of a sense of equanimity or understanding. And it doesn't necessarily, wise effort doesn't necessarily mean only being mindful of what's challenging. Because for her, she was being mindful some, but to expect to be mindful all the time was something that wasn't possible and it wasn't actually helping to have that idea, but it was helpful to have a broader sense of, okay, I have several tools and in this moment, to balance myself and to connect with my own sense of goodness and that which um, is an antidote to distress or despair was very, very helpful. That's wise effort. That's part of wise effort as well. Sometimes wise effort is just about actually getting something going. A lot of, in our lives, often we have a lot of great things that are great ideas and that we never begin. And I remember when I was a graduate student, I had a teacher, and I, you know, as a graduate student, we often have a lot of great ideas, and it takes time to actually develop them. And sometimes, you know, we'd have these great ideas and never would ever work with it, you know, or... You know, if you've ever been a graduate student, you know that the, the moment of actually beginning to write a, a graduate paper, how many people have been a graduate student? So, a certain number, but the, the moment of actually beginning to do it is a big breakthrough because you're actually moving from all this thinking about it to actually doing it. And so, actually beginning something, and this teacher said, the most important thing is just to actually get it going. That's an aspect of wise effort because a lot of times we just think about it, we can have all these ideas for, you know, a hundred hours, but we actually don't do it. And so there's a, there's a wonderful quotation that comes from a man who was uh, a mountain climber, a Scottish mountain climber named W. H. Uh, Murray. Was this, I think this is from the uh, early part of the 20th century. He said, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness, Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, one begins, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never, never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor uh, all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no one could have dreamt of. I have learned this deep respect for one of Goethe, Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do, or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Whatever you can do, or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And so that's an aspect of this third dimension of... uh, Developing good habits or develop, moving in ways that are helpful. And I'll say a few words about the last one. The maintenance of arisen wholesome states, or in the kayaking model, keep your good habits going. And this, again, would be, could reflect itself in, in um, 
knowing what one's good qualities are and giving them attention, giving them nurturance, <coughs> giving uh, mindfulness nurturance. And last time I mentioned that sometimes we actually don't always recognize our own good qualities. So part of having wise effort in this last dimension means actually knowing what our good qualities are. So it's actually knowing, oh, I'm a really um, basically happy person, so let me do that which supports my happiness. Or let me do that which supports my mindfulness. Let me do that which supports my wisdom. And again, this is sort of the... um, This is recognizing that part of wise effort is what we could call maintenance work. The maintenance work, just to keep things going. It might mean... one. And I I mentioned last time, I often think of my own practice as maintenance work. Maybe you can have a more dignified way to think about it, but that's what I do. (laughs) And to think about the things that I do every day just to keep things on an even keel, just to keep the good things going. That's a big part of wise effort. And so just to remember that when you think, oh, maybe I won't practice today. Because just that, you know, that half an hour a day of practice is part of this fourth dimension of wise effort. So I wanted to say a few words about uh, some of the challenges of developing effort. One of them is uh, one of the challenges that we might tend to compare ourselves with other people. Has anyone ever done that? (laughs) And it's important to know that our practice is different. There's very, there are very, very different individual patterns. Uh, The Buddha said, for example, that some people have a painful and slow practice. Other people have a painful and quick practice. Other people have a pleasant and slow practice. And other people have pleasant and quick practice. What would you like? (laughs) Pleasant and quick? Well, we each have it a little bit uh, individually. Or there's another way of saying this. um, Let's see. In, In the Zen tradition, this is from Suzuki Roshi, he says, it is sometimes said that there are four kinds of horses. Excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will, before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does, just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of the bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it's impossible, at least the second best. This is, I think, the usual understanding of the story and the usual understanding of meditation. You may think that when you sit in meditation, you will find out whether you are one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. However, there is a misunderstanding, as you might have thought there would be. If you think that the aim of meditation is to train you to become one of the best horses, you have a big problem. (laughs) This is not the right understanding. If you practice meditation in the right way, it does not matter whether you are the best horse or the worst horse. When you consider the mercy of Buddha, how do you think Buddha will feel about the four kinds of horses? He will have more sympathy for the worst one than for the best one. When you are determined to to practice meditation with the great mind of a Buddha, you will find that the worst horse is the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis 
for your firm, way-seeking mind. So part of what happens in our effort is that we can really make a lot of comparisons and judgments about our practice. And we can think that it should be a certain way and not another way. And there's something really important about really resting in our own life experience. And that's hard, isn't it? Because we want things to be a certain way. We think that certain things that are happening are signs of our own imperfection and likely doom. I'm exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> and it's really crucial just to have mercy on ourselves and to do, it's really to do the best we can. And we don't, there are a lot of things that we don't know, and we, yet we sometimes in our practice we think, I really know completely how I'm doing. And one of the mysteries of our practice is that we actually, it's actually sometimes hard to know how we're doing. And yet we can know what it means to keep on with the best possible effort. There are all sorts of mysteries of this. And so I, the first caution in terms of uh, effort is to be careful about our judgments, to be careful about how we look at things. <coughs> and then there's, there's a, um, a second issue, which is that we sometimes can have a lot of being caught up with striving and self-image. We can interpret effort as primarily striving in a certain way to get something. And this is something that I know in my own practice. Um, In my own practice, for example, I was very uh, going to retreats. I would think since um, I had a certain image that if I did practice and stayed up late and meditated longer than other people, I'd be the best horse. And it was, it was actually quite confused, but there was an element of striving that was connected with self-image. And that's one thing we have to look out for, that we can, our effort can be really caught up with how we think others will see us. And that's something to, to look for. And the other, the other um, side of effort is the problem of not ha- somehow not having enough effort, of feeling like one is, um, um, doesn't have so much energy and can't put out so much effort. And I also found this in myself. I remember the first retreat I ever did, I thought, my God, all this schedule of meditating all day, this is impossible. I'll never be able to do it. I better take a lot of naps to keep my energy safe. You know, so, we have a, so I actually did. I, I took naps several times in my first retreat and I, and I, just to make sure that I had enough energy when 9 o'clock came around. And I was, again, quite confused. <laughs> and, uh, and I somehow thought that I don't have so much energy and I better not put out a lot of energy. And so sometimes we can also find ourselves in the place where we're somehow not giving the level of energy that is actually possible, where we're sort of stuck for various reasons with um, sort of a kind of under-energy or not enough energy. And the quality of effort is likened in the traditional teachings to that of a uh, stringed instrument which is neither too tight nor too loose. So that's, that's, the, that's the quality of effort that we're at, invited to develop. Neither too tight, which would be the striving, the overdoing it, nor too loose, which would just be, eh, I'll be enlightened one of these days, maybe 14 lifetimes from now. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I don't know if you think that way. <laughs> Probably if you did, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> but it, it would be asking ourselves, Am I, is there too little energy? Can I rouse more energy? And then I want to finish just by talking about this uh, wonderful quality, which is, I think, a mature expression of effort, which we could call effortless effort. And it's this 
as we develop our practice more, I think the quality of effort, even that which seemed originally like a lot of effort, starts to be effortless. And it's a beautiful quality that I think we each know in certain of our own experiences. We know that when we've been engaged in certain activities where there's a fullness of effort, it could be, uh, it could be being with another person in dialogue, it could be doing a certain kind of work, it could be part, being part of a team, it could be in meditation, that we know that at certain points there's a kind of tremendous fullness of effort it's, it's a lot like what is um, spoken about by the, I think, Hungarian-born psychologist. Uh, I think it's Miklos Csikenhalik. Do you know that uh, uh, almost unpronounceable word, name, uh, who, who developed the concept of flow? And he said that when we're, there's a kind of a flow state, which is this effortless effort, and the characteristics of the flow state, he said, were deep concentration, highly efficient performance, emotional buoyancy, a heightened sense of mastery, lack of self-consciousness, and transcendence. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> and that's, that's, this, that's this dimension of, FF, of effort. And it's really linked with something that I remember this study that I once read by, a guy, by um, uh, Hubert Dreyfus, who teaches at Berkeley, and I think his brother. They did a study of experts in a number of different fields, or we might say masters in a number of different fields. It was in, you know, it might be in mathematics or in music or in the martial arts. And what they found in all those experts was that originally they had to kind of work to get to where they were. They had to put a lot of conscious effort out. But once they got to a, one of the characteristics of being a master in a particular discipline is that the effort is effortless and they worked highly with intuition. And so for a musician, it would mean at first one has to practice the scales, you have to keep doing the things, you have to keep working at it. It's a lot of effort. You know, like my mother uh, was a musician when she was young. She practiced eight hours a day as a teenager. You know, and she did that over and over again. At a certain point, the practice becomes more like the flow. And one is at a level where there's tremendous energy being put out but it doesn't feel effortful. And that's the direction of the effort. Um, there's, there's a lot of images from sports. One of my friends, uh, Andy Cooper, who lives in Oakland, wrote a book called Playing in the Zone, Exploring the Spiritual Dimension of Sports, which is a wonderful book and has these amazing stories. And they're really about this quality of effortless effort. And I thought I'd read one or two of the stories for you. One of them is from uh, Bill Russell. People know who Bill Russell is? He was one of the great players. He played at, uh, I think, University of San Francisco in the 1950s and later played for the Boston Celtics and was thought to be one of the probably five best basketball players who ever, ever played. He, he said this in some of his, in his autobiography. He was talking about the quality of flow. Every so often a Celtics game would heat up so that it became more than a physical or even mental game and would be magical. That feeling is difficult to describe, and I certainly never talked about it when I was playing. When it happened, I could feel my play rise to a new level. At that special level, all sorts of odd things happened. It was almost as if we were playing in slow motion. During those spells, I could almost sense how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken. Even before the other team brought the ball inbounds, I could feel it so 
um, keenly that I'd want to shout to my teammates, it's coming there, except that I knew everything would change if I did. <laughs> my premonitions would be consistently correct, and I always felt then that I not only knew all the Celtics by heart, but also all the opposing players, and that they all knew me. There have been many times in my career when I felt moved or joyful, that these were the moments when I had chills running up and down my spine. I think that's a quality of this effort. And we find that, we find that in musicians, we find that in athletes. You know, and the, the book is a compilation of a lot of those uh, kind of stories. Um, let me re- I'll read two others from here just to give a sense of that because it's really amazing. Um, this is from the uh, soccer player Pele you know, from uh, Brazil. He said, one day I felt a a strange calmness, unlike anything I had experienced before. It was a type of euphoria. I felt I could run all day without tiring. I could dribble through any of their team or all of them, that I could almost pass through them physically. I felt I could not be hurt. It was a very strange feeling, and one I had not felt before. Perhaps it was merely confidence, but I have felt confident many times without that strange feeling of invincibility. There's something about this is that quality of going into the zone or going into this state of effortless effort. It, it manifests in the marathon runners going into this uh, sense of altered consciousness where there's tremendous effort, but it doesn't feel like anything's happening. And I think I'll close by a similar quotation because I think this also occurs in meditation and occurs when we're with people we feel very close to. And this is from... This is a similar sense of that effortless effort that comes from the Buddha. And it reflects this quality of tremendous effort, but a kind of equanimity and a sense of not really trying. That is, I I would say, the mature expression of wise effort. So he's being, um, actually in this text, he's being interviewed by a deva which basically could be translated as an angel. That's in that cosmology. So the Buddha's being interviewed by an angel. Okay, <laughs> here goes. A deva, tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood, which is a metaphor for the entanglements of the world. How did you cross over the flood? The Buddha, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. So it's getting into paradoxical territory because effortless effort is paradoxical. So hang on here. (laughs) I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place, which is a metaphor, I should say. Pushing forward would be the overstriving and staying in place would be not doing anything somehow. I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place, the deva. But how did you cross over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place? The Buddha, when I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. So do you get that? When I pushed forward, I was whirled about. So it means when I had an imbalance of my energy, I spun around. When I was maybe overstriving, when I pushed forward, I whirled, was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. So it's kind of like when there's not an, enough effort, there's a kind of a sinking. And so I, ne- I neither pushed forward nor whirled about. I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. So it's really this, I think, this invocation 
at the high level of this effortless effort in which, uh, which I think is only developed. We move towards that as we work with those uh, more everyday forms of, I would say, heroic, the heroic-wise effort of simply knowing what to do and asking the question, what should I do in this moment? And so I think that's what we're invited to do with our practice. So I'll end with that, uh, I think, paradoxical yet helpful statement and, and invite your, your reflections. Thank you. Please. Just something um, kind of what you realize that not exactly that right effort. I'm, I'm not sure about Okay. What is the thing about not saying anything and all the power that comes with that? If you say, like, uh, this was a spokesperson that you read. Oh, yeah. He said, I, I knew if I, if I said anything, oh, yeah. everything would change. Yeah. I'm very curious about that. What is it that when you actually <coughs> speak something? Yeah. I've seen that happen in my yeah, own yeah. life. Don't say anything, and then I say something, and then everything changes. Yeah. Well, let's, let's each inquire, but what, what occurs to me are, are two things. Uh, first of all, there might be a certain amount of self-consciousness. One of the other stories that Andy tells in the book is of uh, a moment, in a, it's also in a basketball game, where Michael Jordan had just, um, I think he had just shot in a, at a championship game, like the finals of the NBA, the highest level of competition. He had just shot six straight uh, three-point shots from way, from a long distance. He just, they, and then he turned to the, um, he turned to the kind of the audience and the sportscasters, and he went. Some, some of you may have seen that moment, but he actually went like that, which was actually bringing a certain amount of self, uh, consciousness to what was happening. And of course, he missed the next shot. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there's something about, and it's the same way that if a musician is in the flow and says, wasn't that good? Mm-hmm. Everything gets lost. It's like it breaks the spell in a way. So there may be something about that there that one actually leaves the flow when you, when you uh, notice it in a certain way or you talk about it, it because it can, it can be that. You know, I think in a certain group there could be a noticing that didn't do that, but I think that may be what you're talking about. Does that make yeah. some sense? Yeah, okay. Yeah, thanks. Please. Yeah, it's actually a really big one. Um, the question was about cultivating joy in the midst of distress, and this is actually a really big part, I think, of wise effort, which is to, again, it, it relates to that second of the four guidelines, knowing what to do when one, so to speak, is in trouble or when they're... And um, Because it's a lot of it would be not to because we we have as it were certain tendencies maybe some habits that come up when we're in a certain amount of distress you know for some of us it might be to blame ourselves for others it might be to blame others for others it might be to say here I am in this I'll you know this is my fate or something so we have to that's where the um, mindfulness in the long run is really important because we have to really study those kind of thoughts and habits. But sometimes in a given moment, we just need to shift the energy. And that can happen sometimes by moving towards, towards joy or something that um, could be a state of loving kindness. So it, it's basically invoking a positive state 
as an antidote to a negative state. And so just a few examples of how to do that. Maybe other people have other examples, but something that I uh, sometimes do, if I find myself in a, in a certain amount of distress, you know, like, um, you know, I don't know, I wake up in the middle of the night and I think, oh my God, you know, what is it? You know, or usually these days it's about, because I've been sometimes a little overly busy, it's about, oh my God, I've per- entirely forgot about something that's really important. It's, oh my God, and I, and I just, and, and so then it might be to invoke a certain amount of loving kindness and say, okay, okay, Donald, it's okay. You'll, you'll take care of it. You know, it's kind of invoking a different energy. And Sylvia does this all the time, right? She talks about this. She has that internal dialogue where she says, you know, something's distressing, and she says, you're suffering, aren't you, Sylvia? I am. You don't want to suffer, do you? No. Are you going to keep on suffering? I don't want to. What should I do? Well, let's just... Let's just not continue that old pattern, and let's just um, let's just remember you're a really caring, earnest person, and you know, and you deserve to be happy. <laughs> something, <laughs> something like that. And just a moment, yeah, let me. And and so it could be invoking that um, loving kindness, or if you if you cultivate joy, and you know, it reminds me of um, once in a, I had some surgery, and I worked with a friend who was a hypnotherapist, and she had me. Whenever there was any distress in the surgery, she had me actually trained to, to have an image of something that was beautiful and soothing. And that in the midst of the surgery, I would just go there. And we, we trained on that before the surgery. Like if there was any moment that was really difficult, just go for that state. And I think we can do that regularly. You can almost have a practice. Like when I'm in a distressing moment and I need some more balance, let me go here. And the last thing I'll mention there is that there's also a place for the, um, um, a certain mindfulness of where our bodies go in distress. And if we can study and know that, okay, when I'm in distress, my hands are a little clenched, my chest caves in a little bit, and then is there a posture which is more connected with joy? And it might be, uh, and I've worked with people and myself like that, and just, it's a very subtle thing, but just actually knowing that that a really open stance of the body uh, is, is more linked with joy and well-being, and simply to move in a given moment from here to here shifts consciousness in powerful ways. So there's a lot, there's a lot that's potential. Yeah, thanks. Please. Oh. Um, I, I, a couple of weeks ago, I came to that. I was talking about the pains that I was in for yeah. about the. the you know, losing my boyfriend. The relationship, I remember, yeah. Yeah, and um, I've been going through a lot of the pain and, you know, the pain of it. And there's a point where, you know, you go through the pain mm-hmm. and feel the pain. Yeah. And then pushing the energy through, like, the last few months I've been pushing the energy through to keep going so I can, you know, do my activities to push that energy, even though I was really feeling in pain. And there's a point where I had the pain and suffering, and then yet I wanted to move forward that energy and I kept pushing forward, and I'm, I'm trying to explain it. And then all of a sudden, Monday, I woke up. I was peaceful inside. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, it was like, okay, do, so I don't miss him anymore, or don't love him anymore because I'm peaceful inside. I mean, it's, it's I'm going through that, the process of the healing. Mm-hmm. So you're like you were saying, pushing the energy through, and I kept on going, oh, trying to, to be busy. Mm-hmm. to get through it. 
Mm. And then where is there, where there's too much, I found that my body couldn't handle it anymore. Mm. And it's almost like my body crashed mm. when I woke up. But then I also felt peaceful inside. Mm-hmm. So does that mean that I push through that, that all that pain <coughs> and suffering or push through the energy of going forward? With, and that I'm using doing that because there's a lot of conflicts going mm-hmm. on here. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm at the end of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't... So peaceful now. Remind me of your name? Larice. Larice. Yeah. I was a lot there, Larice. I know. I always <laughs> believe it. I know it's almost at the end of the thing. Yeah, well, it's, it's okay. It's, uh, so there's a lot there, and um, I think you'll have to determine the answers to some of the questions you asked yourself. But just to say that I think there is a kind of um, sequence in terms of working with difficult states. I mean, you're, again, talking about really challenging states. And there's a kind of sequence where if we keep on working with a certain amount of mindfulness, a certain amount of finding balance, maybe a certain, you know, because the ending of relationships can sometimes challenge our sense of whether I'm a loving person. You know, it's really, it's really uh, very hard. And so something that, again, maybe like, like your question, that also went to developing the joy or the, the care towards yourself, that there are certain moments when you move through a certain phase and there can be a sense of relief or peace. And whether it, you know, whether it was the final one, probably not, but it probably was moving through a certain phase and coming back to some degree of balance. You know, and, and not to take it as the final word, but it was, you know, there'll probably be more of those. But it's because it's not a just, you know, most major work with challenging issues that isn't a one-time thing, but you keep on going. So there'll be other moments like that, but it lets you know that it's not all, that doesn't get, need to get stuck with the, the really hard stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a really quick response. And like a, we've said before, a longer one would also be appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe last one, and oh, there's a lot of them. <laughs> Because we're at we're at time. What I'll do is I'll take one more. We'll have our ending, and then if anyone wants to stay around later, I'll I'll stay here for a while. We can continue. But I want to end with the time. So the last, and we'll do make this on the brief side, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Just the piece about the horse. Yeah. I noticed that when I was drawn very profoundly to reflecting on the calling of the rider. Yeah. And just the relational piece of that, like who can inspire without. Yeah, yeah. It's in in a way, it's like the horse is ourselves, and the rider is how we treat ourselves, or how we look at it. And it's an interesting perspective on that, isn't it? So if if I'm the horse that is uh, slow and uh, having a lot of pain, what's my relationship to that as the rider, so to speak? And 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 because in each of them we could have you know basically we have some views we think that we should be a certain way we compare ourselves with certain people and the truth is that somehow i think a a mature level of effort is also connected with a mature appreciation of our uniqueness and our own our own path and knowing that it's not going to be like others it's not going to necessarily fit a model and more the challenges for each of us simply to um bring that quality of wise effort to more and more moments in a wise way. And, and to know that it's going to happen uniquely. And so the attitude we have towards our own particular horse is really, is really, really crucial. 
because we could get really down on our horse, couldn't we? Mm-hmm. You know. Go quicker, Donald. <laughs> or, you know, anyone have whips here? <laughs> All right, we're, we're usually not that kind of a group, but... <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so maybe that's... Uh, that's a good one, really pointing attention to that. So let's, um, let's just sit for a moment, and we'll have closure. And then if some people want to stay for five or ten more minutes, I'll, I'll be happy to stay and continue. Okay. So letting what may have been helpful or inspiring or fruitful about the topic, or maybe something uh, only indirectly related came up. And let's sit with uh, what was helpful and also with any intentions that come from the morning. Any intentions for bringing wise effort into our practice or anything else. So as we close, remembering that we practice not just for ourselves, but for others, and we dedicate the fruits of the morning to the well-being, the healing, and the freedom of all beings. So thank you, and may you have, may we all have an effortlessly effortful week. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.